All right. Well, good evening. Hope you had a good day today. Well, let's open a word of prayer, and then we'll look at um, 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 6 tonight. So, Lord, we just come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here in this place and um, worship you through uh, the opportunity to learn more about you. And, and, Father, we thank you for our copy of your word, and, and we're so privileged to have probably several Bibles in our homes and, uh, Lord, there's some countries that some Christians don't even have a copy of one. And so, Lord, I pray that we would never uh, take that for granted. And, and so, Lord, we just thank you that in our church we cherish your word and, and we want to know more about you through the study of it. And so we pray tonight that you'd lead us and guide us through our time as we look at your holiness and, and what that means to us. And, uh, Lord, we think of those who couldn't be here tonight and just uh, pray that you'd continue to minister to those who may be sick in our congregation and extend your grace uh, to them. And, uh, Father, we uh, just ask that you would, uh, um, through the power of your Spirit, help us to apply what we learned tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember, we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. Last week we looked at the, the power of God in chapter 5. For those of you just to kind of review where we've, where we've been here, you have back at, at the beginning of Samuel, you obviously have the birth of Samuel. He was born in kind of an odd situation. Saying that, basically, if, if you read, go back and read through the first uh, chapter, you, you realize that one of his uh, uh, Elkanah wife was uh, Hannah, the other one was uh, Penina. Hannah had no children, she couldn't have children, she was barren, and so Elkanah went out and married another woman, thinking, okay, provide children so they could care for them when they're old, that's what they did in their culture. Penina didn't have any problem having children at all. As a matter of fact, she had lots of children and she made mock mockery of Hannah um, because of her barrenness. Well, they went to the temple to worship, and Hannah was praying, and Eli, the, the priest, saw her and probably knew of her state and realized, wow, this lady's really messed up emotionally because here she is mumbling to herself, what's she doing? Thought she was drunk, thought maybe her plight had driven her to the bottle. She corrects him and says, no, I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm praying, and as a matter of fact, I covet before the Lord that if the Lord allows me to have a boy, I will bring him back and give him to the Lord, and he can serve the Lord here in the temple. Well, God miraculously answers her prayer, and she goes back and she actually commits her son to uh, the high priest and says, here, take him. I made a commitment before the Lord, and I'm going to abide by that. Eli uh, took kind of Samuel under his care, and he had two other sons who were real bad guys. They were wicked people. And, and remember, we talked about Eli being the, pre, the high priest, and it was supposed to happen between 25 and 50. That was the age bracket, but because his family was so messed up, his sons were so messed up, they couldn't really take over. So they were kind of acting as the high priest because he was getting older. But they had a lot of issues uh, to the point where they brought prostitution into the temple. They stole the people's sacrifices. They were ripping people off. And eventually a prophet comes and prophesies and says, look, you're not going to get away with this one day. And one day you're, both of your sons are going to be dead and you're going to be dead as well. And there's not going to be anybody left in your line 
to serve as high priest, period. And that actually comes to fruition because they go to battle with the Philistines, and in one day, both his sons are killed. And upon receiving the news, he falls backwards, he breaks his neck, he dies. And it's just this, this ongoing thing. In the, in the meantime, in the battle, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God in Israel. And they took the Ark back to their Ashdod, basically their homestead, and said, hey, you know, um, we're going to set Israel's God next to our God, Dagon. And they had uh, an idol in the temple, of their temple, and they were polytheistic, so they worshipped a multitude of gods. And it was just another god that they were adding to their worship center. They didn't think anything about it. And so they set the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically a two-by-four box covered with gold and most likely blood because they sacrificed on it. But uh, they put this box next to Dagon, thinking that somehow this box is going to give them power. In the meantime, if Israel had lost the, the box, <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, because it got captured during the war, so they thought, wow, you know, the Lord has departed because the box is gone, so God is gone. And we talked about how, even as Americans, we tend to worship God through things like idols, even as Christians. You know, with a statue or an angel or whatever, we think somehow that God is going to work through that thing. Even though we know better, we just fall into that sometimes. And that's what they did. And so they thought God had written them off. On the other side, the Philistines had the ark. They thought, man, this God's on our side now. This is going to add to our you know, party here. Everything's going to work out. And we saw basically Dagon's demise and Dagon's defeat. The next morning after they put the ark in there, they woke up and their little God was face down before the ark. And they thought, wow, this is weird. You know, I mean, obviously it's an idol, so it can't really move by itself. Something put it down there, but they didn't even question it. They just put it back up in its place thinking, all right, well, it must have fell over. And we talked about how they had to put that Dagon little god back up. It couldn't do it by itself. And that's what idols are. They're nothing. They're just uh, things that people worship other than God, but they have no power in and of themselves. And then, lo and behold, the next morning, what happened? They, they went over to check it out, and there was Dagon on the floor, his head lopped off, and his hands are gone. His arms are gone. So you just had the, you know, the trunk of Dagon there. Even that really didn't stop them. They were a little worried by that. And they thought, wow, the, the Israeli God has some power here. We better move this thing somewhere else. So they took it from Ashdod, and they moved it to Gath. And at Gath, they had a lot of issues, okay? Uh, people started to break out tumors. All kinds of things started to go. So they said, well, we're going to move it over to Ekron. And, and so they moved it over there. And so in, in chapter 6, basically, the ark is in Ekron, and they've been plagued with tumors and an infection of mice, <laughs> rats or whatever. They're in this predicament, what do we do with this ark? And so we saw at the end of chapter 5 last week, it says, For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. There was judgment against these people. And then it says, The men uh, who did not die were struck with tumors, and the city and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And it says that the ark was there for seven months. So let's pick up here in, in verse... 1 of chapter 6, and we'll read down through verse 1 of chapter 7, and then we'll share some insights as we see it. So we can follow along in your Bibles. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. 
and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Verse 4, and they said, what is, a, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Remember, these, this is a pagan nation. They have no idea what they're doing. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. <laughs> this is kind of a bizarre offering, right? According to the number of the lords of Philistines. Sounds good. We got, we got five leaders. Let's send them one for each. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors. I don't know how you do that. Yeah, it's just kind of a gross thing. And then images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. And these were gold images, so they were obviously worth something. So there was some sense of sacrifice. But you can tell, because they're in pagan worship, their, their thinking is just way off base. You know, they're trying to appease this God, and they have no idea what they're doing. It continues. It says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So you can tell that they have, a, in a weird way, a healthy respect for the God of Israel. They realize that somehow this thing has power over their God. Uh, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and pharaohs uh, hardened their hearts? The, the diviners and the, the priests here are telling him, look, don't repeat the same mistake these other guys did. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? In other words, don't go through the hassle of trying to deny this thing. <laughs> it's not worth it. Because they tried it and, and they had far worse plagues than, than tumors and mice running around. And eventually they had to give in anyway. So just, just give in. And then it says in verse 7, Now then take and prepare a new cart. They probably saw Israel carrying the, the, the ark a certain way, and they thought, well, let's make a cart. Make a new cart with two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. All right. The significance there is if you, if you know anything about farming, if you take two animals, any kind of animals, horses or whatever, and you yoke them together and they've never been yoked together, okay, what are they going to try to do? They're going to go in different directions. You know, they don't understand. Wait, I'm tied to another horse here. I'm tied to another cow. So they're not going to want to cooperate. And so it's almost as if they're making it as hard as possible for this thing to happen. But look at what they say. They say, take these two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home. So they just had calves. And they say, take the calves away from them. Well, what's a mother going to go, want to do? Go with the calf, right? Just logical thing. Take them away from them. Verse 8. It says, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side uh, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. All right, so these little tumors and these mice, these little golden things that you made, throw them in a box next to the cart or next to the ark on the cart and uh, hook the, the uh, cows up and then uh, send it off. Let it go its way. Let's see what happens. And then he says, watch in verse 9. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It just happened by coincidence. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a purely unspiritual thing, but it kind of makes sense in a weird way, right? I mean, okay, if this thing's really, really meant from the Lord, then let's make it as hard as possible for these this ark to get back to Israel. But if it does get back to Israel, then we know that the God of Israel was the one that was against us. And hopefully he'll relent and give us some grace here. So the men did so. They took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, shut up their uh, calves at home, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. 
And the cows, it's hard to say that with a straight face. It's just weird. I mean, it's just a weird, you know, thought. But, and the cows, verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. So the cows just, you know, Lord supernaturally said, all right, here's where you're going. And they did. And they turned neither to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines, they were kind of up in the hills watching this happen, went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. All right, they were busy. They were doing stuff. Back then, this was a big deal. You know, harvest time was a time where you basically got the food for the rest of the year. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Oh, you know, you're supposed to go, oh, the poor cows. But that's what they did. You know, they offered the, the cows to the Lord. And in verse 15 it says, and the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon a, the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and, sacrifice, and sacrifice, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. They said, okay, good. Mission accomplished. Let's get out of here. Hopefully, we'll go back to a town with no more tumors. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. So lots of them. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. Verse 19, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark or looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men. If you have a King James, it, it, it may say... Um, 50,070, I think is what it says. Is that what it says? Yeah, it's wrong. It, it should say uh, 70 men. Okay. Um, it's just a translation error in the, in the King James. He, he struck 70 men, and the people mourned because the, uh, the Lord struck had struck the people with a great blow. Then the, Beth, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he uh, go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. All right, so it's kind of like past the ark here. Uh, the Philistines had it. They didn't want it for clear reasons. But the overall message here of chapter 6 is, I believe, respecting God's sovereign, or respecting God's holiness. All right? Respecting God's holiness. And because we've, we've seen how he's worked in the lives of, of all these people. And remember, from chapter 4, 5, and 6, we don't even see Samuel anymore. We don't even really hear about Israel directly, just indirectly, that they're going to take the ark back to him or something. They almost fall out of the picture. It turns its focus fully on this pagan nation and what they're doing. They went to war, they captured the ark, they had the ark, and now they're returning the ark. But Samuel is nowhere. He doesn't come back till chapter 7. 
And so here we're going to talk about the return of the ark to Israel. But if I, if I ask you the question, you know, what does it mean to fear the Lord? You know, when somebody says, oh, you have to fear the Lord, what does that mean? If you told that to a little child, they, they may say, well, you know, I thought God was loving. I, I didn't know I was supposed to be afraid of God. Well, we're not talking about being afraid of God. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. All right? Now, that doesn't mean you cower under a table because you're scared God's going to hit you with a hammer. That's, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about. And a lot of people get fused. They get the whole thing kind of mixed up. Because they'll come back with, well, wait a minute, I thought God was a God of love. Isn't he our Heavenly Father? Aren't we supposed to love God? Isn't he supposed to love us? Why would I be afraid of God? And so we're not talking of, of that kind of fear. Um, and this is what this passage deals with. As a matter of fact, in the passage, you can probably tell, we ran into three different groups of people. All right, You have the Philistines, who, what they do? They sent the ark away. They didn't want to have anything to do with the ark. You had the, the, the men, the people of Beth Shemesh. What did they do? They, they were glad. They received the ark. And then you had the 70 men, unfortunately, who gave up their life because they peered into the ark. And so you have those three groups of people, and they actually illustrate different attitudes towards God. And, and a lot of times, in the, even in the New Testament, when you have groups of people following Jesus, when you have groups of people at the cross, when you have groups of people at the, at the resurrection. You know, you can very easily put together a message of, okay, who are the different groups of people and what was their reaction? You know, and that's exactly what's happening here. Because the first group, the Philistines, how did they react toward this ark? Well, after their tumor situation and the mice ruining everything in their country, they reacted with fear. Let's get this thing out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with this God. Uh, this is not good, what's happening to us. Uh, the second group, the, the, the folks at, at Beth Shemesh, they actually responded with a reverential fear. They were, they were reverential toward the ark. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then the third group, the, the guys that lost their life, there are 70 of them, they act, reacted with an attitude of disrespect. And you see those different attitudes, don't you, in our country today when it comes to the topic of God or faith. Um, and we're going to look at how each one of these attitudes produces a different result. It'll produce a different result in these, in these folks. Um, and, and basically, those who are fearful of God, fearful, afraid, I should say, of God's holiness, what do they tend to do? They tend to push God away. That's what they do. Uh, those who have reverence for God's holiness receive him gladly, and those who disrespect God provoke his anger. And so let's take a look at each one of these, um, and we'll, we'll see where we go. So the first group here, those who are afraid of God's holiness, push him away. This is in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6. The first attitude is the attitude of what? Fear. Okay. Now we say the beginning of, uh, uh, or, or the fear is the beginning of wisdom. But here we're talking about an, an unhealthy fear. This is not the kind of fear that you should have toward God. Those who were afraid of God's holiness, they're actually afraid of his power. They're, they're fearful. Uh, they push him away. And that's what you see here in verses 1 through 6. It, it tells us really, really simply. I mean, they've gone through this whole thing, and then it says, you know, it's been there seven months, and they called upon their priests and their diviners, and they said, you know, what, what are we going to do with this thing? 
this is, you know, we've moved it here, we've moved it there. Everywhere it goes, there's, there's havoc. Uh, maybe we should just, and they, they come to the conclusion, put it back in its place. In other words, where we got it. Give it back to the, the Israelis. Give it back to them. Let them deal with it. We don't want to deal with it anymore. And see, they thought that somehow by capturing this box that they actually captured the Israeli God. That was their thinking. And there's a lot of people in our society today who are caught up in religious faith kind of things that are not too far from that kind of a thinking. Last week I gave the illustration of somebody having a little statue on their dashboard and accidentally knocking it over and, oh, oh man, man I shouldn't have done that. That was, that's bad. That's good. That's bad. What? This is this little piece of plastic representing, uh, uh, you know, the, the mother of Christ it, because you knocked it over. I, I have a hard time believing that your whole day is going to go bad. But that's what that person believed. And they believed it to their core. And so we have a tendency to put things in the place of God. And the, and the answer when we do that is just put it back in its place. You know, if it's, if it's something that comes between you and God, then you need to put God back in his place in your own life. You need to kind of reconfess him as Lord and say, Lord, don't, don't allow anything to come between us. You know, uh, that's a very important principle because stuff tries to come between us and God all the time. All the time. And so here, as a result of God sending these tumors to the, the Philistines, some say it, was, it could have been the bubonic plague because there was this rat infestation that God gave them as well. Uh, others say the word actually has the idea of hemorrhoids. And, you know, that's, that's the, it's an unpleasant thing to say, but that's what it, it has the indication. And so um, the Philistines took this ark and they said, you know what, we don't want to deal with this. They moved it from, from city to city. And after seven months of, of kind of moving this thing around, um, they asked, you know, wh what do we do with it? And they said, you know what, if you return the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of Israel, back, don't send it back without some, something else alongside it, some kind of an offering. Um, and they ask, well, what should we do? You know, and they come up with this weird convoluted tumor and, 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 and mice kind of a thing. Um, now, these are purely pagan answers. These are purely um, things that God does not prescribe. But the Philistines don't know that. Okay, they're calling upon who? They're calling upon their priests. And they're diviners. These are people who are not converted. These are people who are not following the true God. These are people who are worshiping the same pagan gods that the Philistines do. But there's a hierarchy even in pagan religious practices. You know, so, uh, you know, if you're raised in the Catholic Church, you, you go and you talk to the priest. Why? Because he's the one with the answers. There's just that, and it's, it's that way in every world religion. You have some kind of a hierarchy. Somebody, you go to somebody to get answers. Well, they went to who they thought was going to give them the proper answers. I mean, we look at this and we laugh. We say, really? You're going to make a little mouse, you know, out of gold and a, uh, some kind of tumor? I mean, well, how do you even do that? It's just bizarre. Uh, and I'm sure that they meant well. 
they didn't they weren't trying to put judgment on their own people they wouldn't do that they were they were religious leaders like every religion has religious leaders but if you've ever talked to somebody who's in a cult or you've ever talked to somebody who's in a false religion and you talk to one of their leaders are they sincere sure they're very sincere you know they they really think they really believe what they're most of them do they really believe what they're teaching these people to do. And so they gave him this advice. Um, but there's just so much they get wrong. First of all, God did not want a statue as a guilt offering. That's like the last thing that you would do. What, what did he want? He wanted a sacrifice. All right, he wanted a sacrifice. Uh, and so the Philistines here attempted to pay honor to the God of, of Israel through a gold image. And you can, you can tell that that's how blind, that's how, how ignorant they were of uh, the Israeli God and their practices. But only a, a sacrifice was prescribed as a guilt offering. As a matter of fact, in, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, it tells us that you were supposed to sacrifice a ram for this type of offering. That's what was supposed to be sacrificed. Giving a gold statue was not going to do it. That was just kind of crazy. And the second thing, if you know anything about their, their background, you would understand that you know, pleasing their God is, is you're not going to do it with an image. right? You're not going to do it with a statue. And that's what these tumors were. They were a form of an unclean skin disease that in their culture was a big deal. You know, even in the New Testament, you know, you, you hear you know, the people with leprosy, you know, they were, boy, you know, they had to proclaim themselves before they went anywhere because they were only allowed to be so many feet away. They had to be so many feet away from other people. They had all these rules and regulations over that. Why? Because they thought they were unclean. They just weren't sick. They were literally unclean. They were sinful people. That's what they believed. And so you're going to give a statue of a tumor? which would be classified as an unclean disease back then, to the holy God of Israel? Why, are you nuts? And then you're going to give them a statue of a rat or a mouse, which is also considered unclean? And this is all prescribed. Leviticus chapter 13 talks about the disease. Leviticus chapter 11 talks about which animals were unclean. And so God would not even want these images if they weren't declared unclean. <laughs> Because he had an issue with images and anything that was an image um, that took the place of him. Because the second commandment, what's to do? It forbids making the image, any kind of image for worship. And so the whole thing is just so wrong. And they don't even know it. And here the Philistine priests, the diviners, didn't know any of this. They just wanted to get rid of the ark. So they made their plan according to their own wisdom according to their own upbringing, according to their own faith practice, whatever you want to call it. And you can see what kind of trouble that can get you in. You know, always make sure you have the proper information before you make certain decisions, especially something like this. You know, get counsel. Go to the Word of God and say, well, does the Word of God say anything about this at all? And if it, if it doesn't, maybe it has a principle that would apply. But get some counsel when you're making major decisions, especially about your own faith. And this was something that would affect their whole uh, society. 
They just want to get rid of the ark. And so they urged the Philistines not to harden their hearts. They understood how God of Israel operated. But just get rid of this ark, send it back. And apparently there was some in the group, all right, there was some who was part of the Philistines that still weren't buying it. They said, nah, this is, how are we going to know this is going to work? This doesn't sound good. We got to come up with another scheme to make sure that this is, is, is going to play out the way we want it to. And how are we going to know if God's hand was really upon us? Maybe this was just a big coincidence. All right, that's their thinking. And so they come up with this weird thing of getting the cows and hooking them up and uh, hiding their, 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 their young calves from them and then hooking them up the thing, putting the ark on there with the stuff and saying, okay, hula, go, and let's see what happens. You know, and I'm sure that a certain segment of the Philistines were expecting the cows to try to go in different directions and maybe go in a circle because they didn't know how to yoke a, a cart together. It probably just cause chaos. And it would never make it to Israel, ever. And that's probably what some people believed. And the further the cows went, the closer it got to where it was supposed to go. And the leaders of the Philistines were almost in disbelief. I can't believe this is really working. Uh, there's no one to lead the cows. There's no one to drive the cows. They just hook it up and say, you know, adios, get, get out of here. Um, so they've stacked the deck against these poor cows ever getting this ark where it needs to go. Um, in a weird way, I think the Philistines will know for certain at the end that God's hand was in this. All right, if this card ever makes it there, it's definitely of the Lord. So you look at verse 12, and basically what happens is they follow him. The cart makes it back. In other words, God passed their self-proclaimed test, and the Philistines finally get rid of the ark. It's gone. The Philistines were afraid, in a bad sense, of God's holiness. They were fearful of Israel's God. And as a result, they pushed them away. And you know what? We run into people probably daily that we try to share Christ with or whatever. And, and sometimes people just, not, not here, don't even go there. They don't even want to, you can't even get a word in. And, you know, it looks real bold or whatever. But you know what? I really believe in, in their heart of hearts, something is causing them to be afraid. It could be the way they were raised. It could be the way their view of God. It could be a lot of things. Okay, so sometimes we have to be very patient with people like that. You know, we can't just, you know, proclaim that, well, they're going to be unbelievers and die and go to hell. No, we have to be patient. It doesn't mean we shouldn't befriend them somehow. But we have to be patient because God can work. Um, but it, what's weird is instead of submitting to God, that they were afraid of, that they were impressed with all of his power and everything that he's done for Israel, all the way back to, you know, uh, with, with the Egypt test, all that stuff. They were, they were very impressed with, with Israel's God. That's why they took the ark. If they, they weren't impressed with Israel's God, they wouldn't have taken the ark initially. I mean, who wants a little two-by-four ark, you know, this little box that's, you know, covered with gold. They had lots of gold, obviously. They were making mice out of it, you know. So, I mean, they weren't after the gold. They were after the power that was in that box. And so they really believed that Israel's God was something to be feared. 
And so they thought, well, we'll add him to our collection of gods. But instead of submitting to him, instead of worshiping him, what do they do? They push him away. They send the ark back because they don't have the proper view of God. It reminds me of a story, you probably remember this in Mark 5, where Jesus in the New Testament, he, um, remember the story of Jesus and the pigs? Um, Jesus cast out the demons of, of the man in the graveyard, and he puts them in a herd of pigs. And what happened to the herd of pigs? They'd go over the cliff and drown. And you would think after seeing that, I mean, that would be kind of a supernatural thing if you were there and watching it, right? I mean, that would be kind of weird. Um, and you see the guy that had the demons, now he's in his right mind, and he's fine. So that whole scenario would be kind of odd. You would think that you would be impressed with who Christ is. You would, be, you would think that you would be impressed with his power. And the Bible tells us that when the people saw what had happened, it says they were afraid. Because you don't just see that every day. You know, somebody doesn't cast demons out of an individual and put them in a herd of pigs, and the pigs go nuts and go over the cliff. That's an odd thing to happen. Well, they were afraid, and it says they pleaded with Jesus to what? To go away. <laughs> go away from us. They were acknowledging his power, but they didn't want to have anything to do with him. That's, that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. We run into people like that all the time. You know, and sometimes it's good to ask questions. Are you afraid of God? Um, you know, because in a way you should be if you don't know his forgiveness through Christ because you're still under his judgment for your sin. So you have a reason to be fearful of God. But then you can explain the gospel to them. Um, but if you, if you simply just stay afraid of God, all you're going to do is, is push him away. And you will never be close to him. Somebody whose power you respect. Somebody whose power you are even fearful of. Um, and you want to bring him to the second group of people. You want, you want them to kind of come to the point where they come to a point in their life where they have reverence for God's holiness. Um, and that's what it says here in verse 13 to 18, that those who were afraid of God and his holiness push him away. But those who have reverence for God, those who have respect for God's holiness, receive him gladly. And that's what it says here. They see, you know, these folks are out there harvesting their wheat. And like I said, it's an agrarian society, so this is a, a pretty big deal. I know back east when my brother would, he had a farm, and, and when he would harvest certain things, crops for his uh, animals, I mean, it was like all hands on deck. You know, you all went out to help him, and because it was a big thing, because you had a, a close time frame. This had to be done a certain time before the rain, all this stuff. And, and it was just a very uh, well-run thing, and you couldn't, and nothing interrupted that. I mean, everything, you dropped everything. Most farmers, you know, on harvesting time, they don't come to church. They don't leave their property, because they're just busy, busy, busy. Okay? Well, you see here, what did they respond? How did they respond? Here they are harvesting their, their crops, and they show reverence, first of all, because they put God in their, first in their lives. They saw the ark coming. It was a busy season. They see the ark coming, and they're thinking, wow, what is that? They probably took a second look. What is that? Two cows. It's got a box. That's the ark. And it says they received it 
gladly. They were glad to do it. They showed reverence for God by putting God first and setting their harvest time aside. And they cut up the thing and they did the whole sacrifice thing. Secondly, they made a sacrifice there. Okay, this isn't something that happens in five minutes. <laughs> you know, this is taking some time. Um, they chopped up the wood of the cart. They had carried the ark. They sacrificed the cows. Um, God gave Israel... People always ask, why do they always doing these sacrifices? I mean, it seemed like a bloody mess in the Old Testament. They're always sacrificing, you know, the police are throwing blood here, throwing blood there, whatever. Um, you know, God gave Israel sacrifices for this very simple reason, to teach them they, they cannot approach God on their own. They can't approach God on their own as sinful beings. Okay, that's what the good news of the gospel is. We don't have to try to approach God on our own any longer. We have Christ, right, as our, our mediator. We have Christ in between us and a holy God. That's why we have to put our faith and trust in Christ first and, and count on his sacrifice for us. Because God is what? God is holy. We are what? We are not. We are sinful, fallen beings. Um, now, in the Old Testament, they didn't know this at the time, but those sacrifices that they were doing really pointed forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice. This coming Sunday, uh, right? Yeah, Sunday, we're having communion time. When we have communion time, what do we highlight? We highlight the sacrifice of Christ. The bread represents his body. The blood, or the, the wine represents his blood. Grape juice. So when you stop and think about that, it's, it's what? It's doubling down on, you know, this is something that we need. Even as, as, as Christians, you know, we, we are coming to God through Christ. He is our, our mediator. Um, and you don't see that. You don't hear that a lot today in churches. You don't see that reverence for God a lot today in churches. Um, I... I you know, I used to see it all the time with kids that used to hang out here on the steps. You know, high school kids used to hang out here. I'd go out and try to befriend them. And, you know, they're just typical kids, but they were just obnoxious. You know, I walked out there one time and the kid's urinating on the steps. I mean, the kid's standing around like nothing's going wrong. I said, what are you doing? You know, I just came unglued. And, and, and I said, would you do this on your mother's front porch? I mean, this is a church. You know, I, and, oh, sorry, man, just have an attitude, whatever. I mean, they just don't get it, okay? But it's, it's this kind of thing that we see very clearly in our society, that society is filled with sin. God is holy. We can't approach a holy God as sinners. That's why we need Christ. That's why we trust in the sacrifice of Christ. And so they showed reverence, actually, by doing what God expected them to do, by approaching God and receiving the ark through a sacrifice. You know, they just didn't look over and go, oh, hey, cool, the ark's back, good, let's, let's finish up this harvest. No, they took time. And then the third thing there, they followed God's laws. Because Israel had very strict laws, and only... The, the, the men who were involved in the Levitical priesthood handled the ark. And we're going to find this out 
right in a couple uh, a couple weeks when we, we we continue our study in in first Samuel you had to be careful who touched this ark it wasn't just a two by four box it represented something far greater okay and so what happened here is Beth Shemesh was one of the cities that had been given to the Levites as an inheritance. You see this in, in Joshua 21.16. So there were plenty of Levites all over the place in this town. They were all over the place. And so the people did not presume to grab that ark or, or hey, you know, let's just get it off the cart so we can cut up. Nope. They said, hey, get the Levites over here. Why? Because they wanted to do it right. They wanted to do what God set out in his law and how the ark should be handled. They wanted to do it according to God's law. You know, when's the last time that you had someone come up to you who was not a believer that says, hey, you know, I'm thinking of making this decision. What does the Bible say about this? Very seldom. They're not interested. You know, I mean, even for Christians to be concerned what the Bible says about things sometimes is a stretch. So we really... You know, you, you need to, to remind ourselves that God does give us wisdom from his word. He does prescribe certain principles, certain ways to do things, whether it's dealing with marriage, whether it's dealing with relationships, whether it's dealing with money, whatever it might be, children. He, he gives principles out there. They're not promises to be claimed, you know, um, but they're principles. And if you apply them, it allows God to work. And so they saw this, and they said, you know what? We really want to follow what God has prescribed for us to do. So they brought the, the, uh, the, the Levites over. They, they got the cart cut up. They offered a burnt offering. They made sacrifices to the Lord. They rejoiced. It was, it was a time of celebration. All right, This was a worshipful time for them. Um, and they received the presence of the Lord there through the ark gladly. See, that's what it means to fear fear the Lord. That's what it means to fear God. It's not simply being afraid of him, okay, like he's some big monster, but it's drawing near to God in a reverential way, the way that he prescribed. And usually that involves some kind of sacrifice. Even in our modern Christian life, it involves sacrifice. If you're interested in worshiping God, if you're interested in, in being reverential before God, usually you gather in a place on Sunday mornings with other believers and you worship the Lord in a way that hopefully honors him. Okay, why do you do that? Because he's instructed us to do that. All right, so you're interested in, in, in growing closer to the God that you're even fearful of in, a, in an odd way. And see, in the Old Testament, that meant drawing near to God through the sacrifice of animals. Today, that means drawing near to God through what? Through the sacrifice of your time, through the sacrifice of your talent, through the sacrifice of your treasure. That's what God expects from us. I mean, aren't you glad we don't have to bring animals here every Sunday and go up there and sacrifice them on some altar? I mean, that would get real old. Real quick, for me, it would. But that's what they had to do. And they had to be obedient. They had to do it with the right spirit. They had to do, you know, so that, praise God that we live in the age we do. Um, Hebrews in chapters 10, chapter 10, verse 19 to 22, the book of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place 
by the blood of Jesus, let us what? Draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. See, our faith is not a faith that we have to cower from. I remember hearing a, a story of, of two brothers that were going to Sunday school and they were always getting in trouble. And uh, in one of the Sunday school, the, the uh, teacher sent the, the guy to the Sunday school superintendent and he was this older gentleman, didn't have a real good personality to deal with kids. He didn't know how to handle this kid. He'd been in there a couple times in trouble. And uh, little kid sitting in this chair and this man towers over him and he goes, do you know where God is? Little kid's looking. He asked him again. He's yelling at him, you know. And fine little kid just, he's terrified. He gets up and he runs out of this guy's office and runs over to the class and grabs his brother. And he goes, we got to get out of here. They lost God and, and they think that we stole them. You know, and, and when you stop and you think of people's thinking, you know, sometimes, you know, that we get to gather in this place each and every way. And we don't need to have that kind of fear, but we have to have kind of a reverential awe, it's called. You know, the idea that we're here on Sunday mornings to worship the God who saved us, the God who gave everything he had for us. And he's called us into this unique relationship from all these different backgrounds, as we're talking about on Sunday, all these different cultures, all these different races, into one body in Christ. And what a joy it should be for us to do that when we have the opportunity. You know, that's, that's what the Lord expects from us. Um, and that's how they, they received it. And so those who are afraid of God's holiness, what do they do? They push him away. Those who have reverence for God's holiness, they receive him gladly. All right. And then the third group, and this is just kind of sad in verse 19 here, those who show disrespect for God's holiness really provoke his anger. Um, and the third attitude here is... is it's neither fear nor reverence. Okay, it's, it's kind of rebellious disrespect, you might call it. Uh, those who show disrespect for God's holiness do one thing. They provoke his anger. Okay, they provoke his anger. Uh, and you see it in verses 19 and 20 here of uh, uh, chapter 6. And, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh with, uh, or because they looked in or looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now remember, they, they, had, they, they weren't even supposed to touch this thing, let alone go over and look inside it, open it up. Um, they weren't even allowed to even really look at it in a certain segment. I mean, they, whenever they moved the ark, it was always covered. Okay, they had certain regulations about all this. It sounds kind of crazy for us, because on one hand, we know it's just this box, but it's what it represents that's holy. It represents the presence of God. It's not God, okay, but it represented that. So, you know, they, they rejoice when it, it first arrived there, but they had the Levites handle it properly, but then you had these, I mean, you think... I, I would wonder who the 70th guy was. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. I mean, uh, duh. You know, okay, wow, he went over and opened that box. Now he's dead. Let's, let's, what's in there? 
I mean, how many times does that have to happen before you realize this might not be a good idea? Maybe we should ask the Levites what's going on here. You know, I mean, no. Uh, yes, exactly. It's so odd. Because they weren't even supposed to look at the ark, let alone look into it. Um, and as I said, no one really saw the ark except for the priest. And when it was in the Holy Holy, they kept it behind the curtain. That's what it was all, it was all about. When it was time to move in, the priest first covered it, and then the Levites would carry it to its new destination, put it back in the Holy Holies, put the curtain up, and then they would uncover it. It was only for the priest. So these men did this. It was, it, was, it was really an act of complete disrespect for what this represented. You know, when we have communion, we talk about, um, you know, pastors say, you know, you draw a fence around the communion table. You know, and what that means is you let the congregation, those who are gathered there, that look, what this communion table about is this. You know, you don't have to be a member of our church as far as Grace Bible Church to take communion here, but we do expect you to be a member of Christ's church. We do expect you to be a believer. And so if you're not, that's okay. Just pass the bread along, pass, pass the juice along. Nobody's going to say anything. We're not going to point at you and say, oh, why didn't you take communion? That's the wrong thing to do. Okay? Um, and so we encourage people at communion time to make sure that they're doing it with reverence, with respect, okay, and with an attitude of humility before God. And, and so we want, when, when we do that, we don't want it just to be a habitual thing. Oh, the first Sunday we have communion, okay, boom, boom, you know, thanks. Next, you know, what else is new? Um, and sometimes it can become that. And so I really challenge you, even this week, go through some passages in the New Testament, talk about the sacrifice of Christ, talk about the death of Christ, talk about the resurrection of Christ. Um, read this section in Corinthians that talks about communion. Dwell on it a little bit. You know, see, this is the, the neat thing about <clears throat> the kind of church that we have here, because when we teach the Bible, we generally teach through a book, I mean, we do some topical stuff now and then, you know, maybe Christmas time or New Year, whatever, Easter maybe. <clears throat> but for the most part, we're, we're going from, you know, verse to verse, chapter to chapter. So, you know, if I asked you, well, where are we at in Romans? You'd probably say, okay, well, last week you got to verse 3 of Romans 15, so I'm assuming you're going to pick up in verse 4. Right! Okay, and we just continue. Okay, so that, what does that do? That gives you the tactical advantage of saying, you know what, I can do some homework. <laughs> I can prepare my heart before he even opens up his mouth. You know, do your own study on Romans 15. Come with some questions. Come, come prepared to receive the word of God. Because that's, that will make it a very rich experience for you. Versus dragging yourself out of bed through a horrendous week, staying up till 2 in the morning and pulling yourself in here going, man, the pastor says something, or they sing a song or something, because I am bushed. You know, and it really grieves, I think, the heart of God when we come with that kind of an attitude. And so here, you know, you see they, they, they handled it correctly. They, they did all this stuff. Um, you know, if you wonder what happens with the, the, the art, you know, have you ever seen uh, the, the movie uh, with, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Um, I almost called it Raiders of the Found Ark. But, you know, it, it's so so important that we understand that when these 70 guys looked into this ark, 
or you know, they looked inside this box. 70 of these men died. Not 68, 70. Um, in other words, the point is this. When you show disrespect for God's holiness, his anger is severe and it's thorough. Okay? And sometimes to make an application into our Christian lives, okay, I've talked sometimes to Christians who in their Christian lives, they're doing one thing. They're living in a way that's not honoring to the Lord or they're doing, they're caught up in some sin or whatever and their life is a mess. And when you talk to them about it, it's almost like they have an attitude, well, this shouldn't be happening because I'm a Christian. You know, and it's like, no, wait a minute. You're not even doing the minimum of what God expects from you. And you're expecting just because you're, quote, a Christian, that you get a free pass on everything? Doesn't work that way. You know, when we disrespect God in any way, uh, he's going to let us know. And so we don't want to be on that end of it. Uh, well, how do, we, how do we show disrespect for God's holiness today? Um, one way is, is to have a, a lack of respect for his word. All right? You see that in modern-day church, churches today all the time. All right? I, I don't get a, to go to a lot of different churches, but I talk to people that do. And you can tell when they have a healthy respect for God's word. Because they'll be visiting a church and they'll say, I'll say, how was the, the service? I'm interested. And if they really care about God's word and they care about the church, they'll say, you know, I was really grieved. Why? I mean, they had all this stuff. It was really cool. They had all this music, all the play, skit, all this. And then, you know, poor pastor, he had, he had 10 minutes. And he didn't even open his Bible. It was kind of like a talk kind of a thing. And he was a really good communicator, good-looking guy, but it, it was so sad to think you have all these people here and you're not teaching them the Word of God. What are you doing? <laughs> and you're calling yourself a church. Okay, so we show disrespect for God when we disrespect God's Word in our lives. Um, we, respect, we disrespect His holiness. Another way is we can show disrespect for God's holiness is, as I mentioned, during our communion time together. You just kind of, you know... Um, Chew on the chew on the bread and slug the slug the juice, and you're over. Um, think about it. Spend some time. Examine yourself. As the Bible says, do it the right way. Um, if there's sin, you need to repent of it. Um, show respect for God's holiness. Um, you know, in in Corinthians, when you read through the book of Corinthians, it was a really messed up churches. I've said before, but in chapter 11, it actually tells us that in the early church, people actually ended up getting sick and even dying uh, because they took communion in an unworthy manner. I don't know what that meant. I mean, they had a lot of sin going on in that church, so who knows what was going on. But, you know, we need to be respectful of that. Uh, the, main, the main thing here is to show respect for God's holiness. Um, I think the ultimate way that you can show disrespect for God's holiness is what? By rejecting by rejecting his gift. I mean, here is the God who created you, the most holy being ever, and he stoops down to give you a gift, free, no cost, and you spit in his face and say, how dare you offer me a gift? I mean, that is the height of, of disrespect. Uh, 
The book of Hebrews says anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated who, who has treated as a unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Um, we just need to be, you know, reminded that, that God is not mocked, right? I mean, we have to be careful of that. It, it says that uh, um, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um and God sent the perfect sacrifice for us. He sent that sacrifice to pay for our sins. And what greater disrespect can you have than, than to reject that gift? So you had 70 men here in this town who looked into the ark and died. You had people rejoicing at one point, and then it ends as they're mourning they're dead. And you look at the end of the chapter here, and they ask the question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom... Will the ark go from here? Um, and it says in verse 1, we'll get into this next week, but verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And so, you know, you, you see that these people basically did the same thing as the Philistines. Right? Even though they received it gladly. They said, ah, let's get this thing away from here. Um, they pushed it away. And so it, just because you're, you're part of one group or not part of the other group, you know, it's really an individual heart, heart matter. And that's what we need to kind of make sure that we, we understand. Um, eventually, the ark stays there in kiriath Jerim until King David finally brings it to Jerusalem. And so, you know, basically I ask the question here tonight, what's your attitude toward God? What's your attitude toward God's holiness? Um, if you're afraid of God, you're only going to push him away. That's no good if you have a, a, um, no fear of God at all and you disrespect him, then you're going to provoke his anger. Uh, either one of those is not, not a good choice. So he wants you to come with an attitude of respect, an attitude of reverence, recognize that he is God, you're not and submit to him and acknowledge his holiness. And as a result of that, we can uh, say what it says in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. All right? Amen? Amen.